again to the Perimeter Church podcast. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus prays that his disciples be one so that the world may believe that the Father sent him. Community was important enough to Christ that he used it as a way to show the world that he was who he said he was. Andy Nelson, youth pastor at Spanish River Church in Boca Raton, Florida, starts the series The Church, Aspects of the Christian Community, with this message entitled, A Community That Lives Distinctly, which covers Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Thank you for joining us today. If you've been around our church for the last few years, you might have uh, pieced together that every summer... Uh, We've been having a sermon series of guests, so to speak, uh, of young leaders of our denomination. And no series of young leaders, I think, will ever be more special than the one that we're having this summer. And that's because we are having uh, five young men, five young pastors, who in one way or another are all homegrown here uh, at Perimeter. An exciting series. And and none of those guys is more homegrown than the guy who is batting leadoff uh, for this series. Uh, Andy Nelson's parents came into Perimeter in just the first two or three years that the church existed, so they've been around forever. Uh, Back in the mid-80s when the in-town congregation was started, Andy's dad, Brad, was one of the guys that interviewed me and Margaret Ann for that possibility, and so we have known the Nelsons since then, Uh, not as closely as the Pope family has, but for a long, long time, and uh, back in the day when we were in town and the Nelsons were up here at Perimeter, I just knew that the Nelsons had four little girls and one little boy wedged between all those girls, and I just hoped he would turn out okay, you know? (laughs) As it turns out, he turned out more than okay, and uh, just a great young man, and I remember uh, years ago hearing about him as one of the student speakers at our Gold Rush Conference when he was still in high school, and then hearing that he did a youth ministry internship when David Grant was our youth pastor. Uh, for several years, uh, Andy was the youth pastor at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Gainesville, uh, Georgia, and really grew in ministry there. And then for the last number of years, he's been a part-time seminary student, but full-time youth pastor and on the teaching team of Spanish River Presbyterian Church in Boca Raton. And Spanish River is not just any church. Spanish River is a tremendous church, a great church. Well over a 1,000 people, and uh, their influence goes way beyond that. Spanish River has been evaluated as one of the five top church-planting churches in America. They've been one of the leading churches of our denomination in terms of evangelistic fruitfulness for decades. And they have a huge influence on all of South Florida And not only is Andy their youth pastor of a group, I would imagine, several hundred kids, but he is also on their teaching team, which means in their context, he is preaching 12 to 15 times a year at Spanish River, and that is no small thing. And so we are very blessed to have Andy with us today. Andy married uh, his high school sweetheart, Emily. They went to Norcross High School together, University of Georgia together. And they now have a lot of children because that's what the Nelson family does. That's just what they do. They have lots of kids, and so uh, they have three little boys and one baby girl, and uh, just a great little family. So welcome, Andy. Andy, come on up here, and let me pray for you. I heard Andy's message at the 9 o'clock service. You're going to be greatly blessed in what he's going to share, so let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Andy. We thank you for how his life is such a testimony uh, to what it's like. Uh, for a family to follow Christ together. And we thank you for uh, how his, his own life is an overflow of 
Perimeter Christian School and this church's youth ministry and children's ministry and young adult ministry and uh, just your work of grace. Lord, we know that you have worked greatly in this man's life and you've now brought many other influences. Lord, we ask you now that you would open up our hearts to hear the word of God through this man that you've anointed and we would sit under it to hear it for our own hearts that we would believe, that we would trust, that we would obey. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Bob. Good morning. I remember thinking, you know, how hard can it be to get a job as a soccer coach for eight-year-olds at the YMCA? It it doesn't feel like it's all that difficult. After all, you you, you dribble, you kick, you shoot, you don't use your hands. I mean, if you get the big four, then, then you're good to go, right? And so, I didn't really prepare for my interview at the YMCA to be a soccer coach. And so I arrived and I began to talk to this guy, pretty confident as I entered. And and as we began to talk, um, I realized that my soccer expertise maybe wasn't as fine as I thought it was. After all, I had quit playing soccer when I was about seven years old. And so he begins to to talk to me about it, and he says to me, you know, you know are you, do you know soccer? Well, yeah, I know a little bit about the game, I know the fundamentals. After all, my girlfriend played in high school, so now my wife, she played, so yeah, I mean, that counts for something, right? And uh, I had a lot of friends who played soccer. I was a soccer referee from my first job. He was rather unimpressed. I started to get a little nervous, and he said, okay, well, you know, let's talk about what's your experience with kids. I thought, oh, great, I'm, I'm really good with kids. But I also realized I didn't have a lot of experience at how great I thought I was with kids. And so as I began to talk, I, I, I said something. It was, it was not intentional. I wasn't trying to deceive. But, but as I was trying to sort of talk about my experience with kids, I just mentioned Camp All-American. He stopped me. Hey, guys. He said, he said, oh, did you ever work at Camp All-American? Now, here's what you got to understand. I grew up at Perimeter. I've been around a long time. I I went to Camp All-American. My sisters worked at Camp All-American. I mean, in 1991, at Simpsonwood Retreat Center, I received the Hustle Award from Steve Wiegand himself. If anybody is Camp All-American, I am Camp All-American. I know it's the place to be. I know about it. I've seen it. I grew up. I mean, Camp All-American, of course I know Camp All-American, but... In response to the question, have you worked at Camp All-American, the answer is no. And so here I am faced with this dilemma. He's he's asked me point blank, and I have two options. One, I can lie. And I kind of knew I could lie and probably get away with it. I could talk about my experience, and I knew enough about how it worked, and oh yeah, you know, I did golf, and I you know, also helped with the low ropes course. I, and I knew that I could probably get them there. Or I could tell the truth. And in telling the truth, sort of let off that I might have tried to deceive him a little bit and look pretty stupid in the, in the process. I chose to tell him the truth. I remember him looking at me and saying, well, then why did you mention Camp All-American? I, you know, I just am familiar with it. And, and, and I kind of left embarrassed. I left kind of dejected. I kind of put my, tw- my tail between my legs and, and I left. I never worked as a soccer coach at the YMCA. <laughs> but, I, but I learned something really important. I, I learned that, that we find these moments in our life. We all have them, all the time. We're faced with these, these questions. We're faced with this dilemma where we stand and we say, okay, I, I can do 
one of two things. I, I can do what's right, what I know God has called me to do that, that's right, or I can choose the other way and oftentimes get away with it. And, and by doing that, it, it sometimes it's easy and it, it leads to what we call bad character. Or on the other end, if, if we choose to do the right thing, even when it's difficult, it will lead to good character. Now, this is a story where I, I made the right decision. Didn't get the job, but made the right decision. I, I could tell you countless stories at times that I didn't make the right decision. But, but, it, but it stands in my mind as one of those moments where, where I knew in that moment I had a choice. Am I going to do what is right, what I know God's called me to, or am I going to lie and possibly even get this job? Now, you can't lie to get a job at the YMCA with eight-year-olds. I mean, how, how do you teach eight-year-old soccer? Like, you got to be honest, you know, always kick it in the goal, be honest. Like, I, I, I couldn't do that. This morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at Romans chapter 12, verse 9 through 21. This passage is going to paint a picture for us of the community of God's people living in distinct ways. It's going to paint a picture of character and how we as a community, as a church, are supposed to act. Before I do that, let me just say I am really glad to be here. Appreciate Bob's introduction. He, he shared, you know, we are, have been at Spanish River for five years. We love Spanish River. It's an amazing place. Um, the gospel is moving forward there. We give lots and lots of church planning. Our executive pastors in Africa looking at places that we could potentially partner with. It's been a really cool place and a place that I have grown immensely. But when I think of home, when I think of church home, I think of perimeter. I think of being here. When we come back to see our, my folks and, and Emily's folks, we, we come here because this, in so many ways, is our church home. I went to Primitive Christian School first through eighth grade. I was involved in the student ministry. I kissed my eighth grade girlfriend in that balcony right there. Um, <laughs> I, this, this is home to me. So many of you, I recognize your hair's a little grayer, but I recognize you. It, it, it's it's so wonderful and such an exciting thing for me to be here. Uh, as, as, as we've talked, um, all five of us, um, as, as we've talked about this series, it's a series where we're going to particularly look at the church. We're going to share a little bit of how we've been shaped by the church, but ultimately, what is some aspects of the church? What are these aspects that God has, has called us to be? What is, what is the church supposed to look like? And so each one of us will take an aspect of the church and begin to sort of dig into what that is. And this morning, it's the person that God uses and, and ultimately how we become a community that's distinct, that affects the world. So if you have your Bible, Romans chapter 12, verse 9 through 21, I'll be reading it in the ESV. It'll be on the screens as well. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 
Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Lord, may you work in our hearts this morning. May we see how you have called us to be a community that is distinct, to be a a group of people who lives in a way that is honoring to you. May we exhibit the characteristics that are in this passage. May we be your people in this world in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I want to start by by sort of giving us a little bit of a picture of what this passage paints. What is this passage trying to show us and what is it trying to to say about how it is that we should act? If you have the SV Bible, which I have, you may have right there at the very top a little subheading that says, Marks of the True Christian. That's kind of what this passage is. It's characteristics of God's people. It is the embodiment of Christ. So, so our first point this morning is Christ-like character because it embodies who Christ is and the very character, the very nature of him. But it also should give us a picture of who we are and who we're called to be in this world. If, if you read this passage and you look at it um, in, in the original language, um, it, it's imperatives, meaning it's commands that it gives us. Do this, don't do this. So it would be like reading do, 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 do not, do, 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 do. It, it's, a, it's a list, and sometimes these are hard for Christians, but it's a, it's a list of the characteristics of God's people. This is, who, this is who we're called to be. If we're to have Christ-like character, these are the things that God's called us to. I looked and found 23 characteristics of a person that follows Christ. John Stott uh, breaks the list into eight particular categories from verse 9 to 16. He says this list includes sincerity, discernment, affection, honor, enthusiasm, sympathy, harmony, humility. I mean, this, this passage gives us a picture. It says, let love be genuine. Paul says this all throughout his letters. He talks about how we're to love. I think of 1 Corinthians 13 where he talks about that famous passage we read at every wedding about love. I think of Colossians chapter 3 where he gives these, these things, be compassionate and loving and all this thing, and he ends right there. But most of all, love, which binds everybody together in perfect harmony. That's where our passion starts. It starts in love, and then it moves and it says, abhor what is evil, to, to hate that which is evil in our culture. I read this article this week about a particular horror film that's evidently very horrific. I've not seen the film, but the the director was talking about it. And he said, I I think human beings kind of like to be sadistic. I think they kind of like this dark stuff. I think he's kind of right. And yet as as followers of Christ, we're called to, to hate evil. To hate that is evil in the world and cling to the good. To cling to to what God has called us to. It calls us to love and care for others. Even our enemy. Even to to feed and to give drink to those who we hate. 
to let God do the punishment and for us to love the, the person that's hard, to, to live peaceably with others, to, to live in harmony with others, to be patient in tribulation, to, to, to wait in the midst of trial. That's so hard. It, it calls us to be constant in prayer and to, to, to follow the Lord. I mean, we get this picture as we walk through this passage. We get this picture of God's people that are unique. Uh, this list to me is very countercultural. If you think of outside the walls of the church, how, how we're called to live, the, the answer is take care of you. I and mean, the first person that you've got to serve is you. You, you take care of number one, and you, you serve you and you only. This, this passage flies in the face of that belief. It flies in the face of the cultural perspective that, that you are to, to do what's best for you. And what it says, embody these things that Christ has called us to. Uh, a couple months ago, I was preaching from this passage. One of the things that I'll let you guys in on a little secret. Um, all of the pastors, for the most part, we just took one of our, our old greatest hits and we're just redoing it and we just made it work in the, uh, in the series a little bit. So I preached this message about nine months ago. And, and as a part of it, we were talking about work at Spanish River and the person that God uses. And, and as a part of it, I, I sat down with a couple of guys um, in our church one of, the, one of them who was my uh, really good friend down there, he volunteers with the youth ministry, but he also happens to have worked in the corporate world for 20 years. He works for um, a large Fortune 500 company in, in Boca Raton who has their headquarters there. He's kind of this high-level director guy. I don't know, he wears suits and does important business things. And, and we went and we sat down for lunch. And I said, hey, I've got a couple questions for you guys. Will you help answer this? I've only ever worked for the church, so I need a, a little bit of perspective of people who work outside the church. And I showed him the passage, and I said, guys, guys, help me. Is this some characteristics of somebody you'd like to hire in your organization? Like, they do a lot of hiring and firing and all that. I said, would you, if you saw somebody and they made up this list, would it be somebody that you'd like to hire? They said, yeah, absolutely. This is, this is a great list, and this would be somebody that we would want on our team. I said, let me ask a follow-up question. Generally speaking, What's sort of the perspective, perception of Christians in your organization? Is it generally positive or is it, is it generally negative? Do, do they sort of fit this? I said, Andy, it's, it's generally negative. I said, so if you were in a job interview and you said, I'm a Christian, would that work to your advantage or would it work to your disadvantage? They said, it would probably work to your disadvantage in our organization. And I, and I thought to myself, well, why is this? If, if you say that this list embodies what would be a, an ideal person to hire, and over here you would say, well, that generally speaking, we, we don't think that Christians are the best people to hire. It means that, that somewhere there's a breakdown. Somewhere we're not embodying this list. But the, the truth of the matter is, for me, when I read this list, I go, I don't really embody this list. I, 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 don't, I, I don't feel like I have I've fully grasped and, and I've gotten to this point where I really live this in my daily life. I, I'm a professional Christian. I work at a church. I'm probably better than you and I don't live this every day. But, but then what happens for us as we hear this and as we read a, a passage like this, we begin to, to, to think about something like this. What, what happens is we begin to personalize it. We, I look at a list like this or I, I think about a passage like this and I begin to wonder, how does this apply to me? 
How does it apply to Andy and my particular life? And how am I doing in these different areas? Am I praying a lot? Am I fervent in spirit? Am I hospitable? Am I peaceable? Do I do these things? I would guess that in some ways, as, as we begin to talk, you begin to think about it for yourself. But the reality is this passage is not really about you. It's about the community that you're in. Let me read for you Romans chapter 12, verse 4 through 5, to give you a little context of Romans as a whole. He says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. You see, as it talks about this, it's talking about how we interact with one another. It's in the context of our life together. It's in the context of the fact that that we are a community that lives together. And so this should be not just the characteristics of, of us individually, but as the culture looks out upon us, what they should see is the embodiment of Christ-like character. We are called to be a distinctive community. The church, both here in Northeast Atlanta and, and down in Boca Raton, Florida, and in all over the place, is called to be a distinctive community in the world, embodying the, the very Christ-like character that Christ himself lived. I, I mean, as, as I look at, at how these interact, you, you never... You never just do character by yourself. You, you notice this? Like, you, you can't just, uh, you can't be hospitable without having somebody to be hospitable to. You have to invite somebody to your house to be hospitable. You can't live in harmony with yourself, although you could live in harmony with yourself. It, it, it wouldn't do you a whole lot of good. It's, it's calling us to live in harmony with others. But most of these imperatives, most of these commands are, are about us living in harmony with others. It's about a community. This is a, this is a grouping, a communal thing. It, it affects our character, it affects our job, it affects our family, it affects our children. I love the experience that I've gotten at Perimeter Church because the reality is I can see so clearly the effect that this particular community has had on my life. I mean, I think about the fact that I grew up in the Sunday school. I grew up at Perimeter Christian School. I got this foundation from Perimeter Christian School of, of faith and of learning. I was involved in the student ministry here. I've, I've told countless people, I believe I'm in full-time ministry because of the Gold Rush Student Conference. I got opportunity and experience to be in front of people and to sort of feel what it's like to do ministry and to sort of work out gifts at a very young age, 15, 16, 17 years old that involved in an internship here at Perimeter that that helped me sort of crystallize my call from God to go into ministry. The the countless number of families that I know, I I remember being in high school and thinking, I can't get away with anything. All these people are connected. I just want to do one bad thing and I get caught every time. I mean, I had to bring my girlfriends to Randy Pope's house for him to meet her. And he would say, is she a Christian? No, you can't date him. Like, I just want to date a girl, Randy. Come on. <laughs> I, I, I grew up in this community that loved and cared for me and shaped the very person that I am. It's why, it's, it's why when people leave the church, they oftentimes come back when they have kids. Because we know that, that this community is different. 
But yet there are, there are moments where we, we look at a passage like this and we think, I'm not living this right. Or, or maybe we could even look at the community as a whole and say, I don't know if there's parts of this that we're living. Now, if you are a regular churchgoer and, and you, you know gospel-centeredness, you've kind of gotten to this point where you say, Andy is talking a lot about what we should do. And in some ways I am, because in some ways that's what our passage is getting at. And, and so, how do we get better is the question. How, how, do we, how do we improve? If we look at a list like this and we say, well, I don't necessarily embody this, and, and our community maybe doesn't totally embody this, how is it that we would be transformed such that we could become a distinctive community? I guess my question is, how do we get better? Let's, let's think about this for a second. How do we normally do this, like outside um, the, the church in the quote-unquote real world? How is it that we, we try and improve? Uh, think with me for a second. Um, if you're a high school student, remember back when you were a high school student or when you had a high school student, or if you are currently a high school student, remember last week. And remember um, when, when you had exams and you were coming up to a class and it was, it was about to end and you had a C in the class. And, and what you needed was a 95 on the exam to make a B. And mom and dad said, if you don't make a B in that class, we are going to take your cell phone for the entire summer. Which is the worst thing you can possibly tell a high school student. And, and, and so you're like, I'm going to do everything in my power to get a 95 on the exam. And all of a sudden, this kid is, they're making flashcards, they're memorizing things they haven't memorized in years, and they knock that exam out of the park. They work their butt off, and they knock this exam out of the park. 95, be in the class, give me that cell phone. Now, I want you to think in the same regard, um, that you're a business person, and, and your boss comes to you and he says, sales are down. Sales are down and we need to do something or this company's going under and you're, go- you're going to lose your job. What do you do? Well, we got to figure this out. We got we to increase marketing. We got to get some new salespeople. We got to start calling people, email blasts. And we got to do whatever it takes to get people to buy our product. We need customers, baby, and let's do this. And you fire it up and you get the engine going and you do your very best to get as many people to buy the product as possible. And you, and you survive the third quarter. Because you sort of reached down and you dug down and you did it. This is how we oftentimes approach life in general. But I don't think it's the answer to our spiritual life. I don't think it's the answer to, to how we are transformed, begin to grow in character as followers of Jesus. As a matter of fact, I think that's even sort of a broken model as it relates to school or business or whatever other area you want to, to, to look at. Because in some regards, if you do that with a kid in school, why, why did he have a C in the first place? Why did she have a C in the first place? That all they had to do was just study throughout the time. There was, there was sort of a problem initially. Or, or your sales are down, and then all of a sudden you got your sales back up. you got to sort of wonder what's going on with the sales team or what's going on with these things. It's failing to deal with the root issue. I think there's two ways that we generally approach character. There's, there's two ways that we generally approach how we would go about this. The first is a moralistic approach. It, it is that idea that you look and you say, okay, I, I see a list like this, and, and so what I need to do is I need to get better. 
And, and we look at certain areas, we say, okay, I'm not hospitable enough. So we're going to invite somebody over every single day for a, a week. And so then you have all these people in your home, and you're the most hospitable, hospitable person that's ever hospitalized anybody in the whole world. And you just think, I am so hospitable. At the end of it, you're exhausted. At the end of it, you just think, I am, I am so tired. And, and you're drained. Or you say, you know what, I don't pray enough, I'm going to just, I'm going to do my best, I'm going to wake up, I'm, I'm going to pray, I'm, I'm going to be very, very good about this prayer. And at the end of it, one of two things happens. One, maybe you do it. You think, that was great, I am really great, I just got myself to pray more and I'm, I'm a really good prayer. Or on the opposite side, you go, this stinks. God doesn't even love me, I, I couldn't even pray five times this week. It, it's, it's our attempt to earn God. It's our attempt to think that, that if we do enough good things, if we just try and live a good enough life, if we just try to embody this picture of the, that God's given us in his word, then God's really going to love us. And it leads to either pride or guilt. The, the second way that you may approach, and I would, I would think this would be more outside the church, but it could be inside the church as well, is indifference. It's just to say, you know what, I, I do what I want. If I, want to, if I want to live this way, I live this way. If I want to live that way, I live that way. I set my own moral code. I set my own ethical code. And whatever I do, I choose to do. And, and that's mine. Here's the problem with that view a little bit. I heard Tim Keller give this example of the Gospel Coalition a couple of weeks ago. He said this. I want you to imagine that you had around your neck a voice recorder. It was invisible. People couldn't see the voice recorder. And it only turned on at certain times. It only turned on when you said you should or you ought to. So every time you started a phrase, hey, you should do this, or you ought to do this. Now imagine it, it kept a recording of all the times that you said you should do this, or you ought to do this. And, and then it made up a little list of all the things that somebody should or should not or ought to do. Could you live up to your own moral code? None of us could. I can't even live up to the own code that I expect others to live by. You see, in this regard, we are unable to live this life on our own. We're unable to do this on our very own. But there's good news. That we have a Savior who's done this. We have a Savior who has embodied this list perfectly. We have somebody who has, who has lived this on our behalf. You see, if we just take Romans chapter 12, verse 9 through 21 by itself, I think what happens for us is we get a little insulated and we get to this point where we say, we've got to just do these things and I've got to just try really hard to do it. And there's, there's no freedom in that. What we have to do this morning is we have to step back a little bit, and I'm going to give you a little bit of a picture of what, what Romans says, 1 to 12, briefly. Because we've got to understand what the context that Romans 12 sits in, because outside of the context, we just are left to say, i just got to try harder, I'm just not very good. And so what we see in Romans chapter 1, at the very beginning, what, what Paul does is he describes to, to people, he says, hey, listen, this is why you're messed up. He explains our sin. He says, you, you've exchanged the glory of God for images of the created instead of the creator. You've exchanged 
this world for what you should really have. And it's led to all kinds of sin. All kinds of sin that Romans goes on to say that the wages of sin is death. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. We are left on our own devices to to try and do well, but nothing works. Instead, it only leads to sin, and sin only leads to death. A a death that's physical, but a death that's eternal and spiritual. That that, that no longer are are we connected to the God who, who created us because our sin has separated us. No longer can we begin to embody that which he's called us to because we're, we're only given to sin and to death. But Romans goes on to give the good news. Romans goes on to give the the picture. In in Romans chapter 5, it says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In our sin, you see Jesus who perfectly embodied this very list. He he did something radical. He went to the cross and he died for you and I. And and on that cross, uh, God put our sin, my sin, your sin, on Jesus and punished him in our place so that we could have life. And we put our faith in Christ. We trust in Christ. What we get is his very righteousness. So for us to begin to change, for us to begin to get a picture of what it looks like to be transformed is to understand that story, the gospel, that Jesus, the perfect embodiment of character, the the man who, who loved his enemy, he loved his enemy so much that he would die for them. This calls us just to feed them. Romans 5 says, you know, somebody would die for a good person. For a bad person, somebody would rarely die. And Jesus did this. The only righteous person died in our place so that we could have life, canceling the sin debt that was against us, giving us life. And so Romans 6 through 8 begins to give us this picture of how it is that we might begin to change, how it is that we might begin to be transformed. Let me read for you um, just a quick passage in Romans chapter 6. It says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Skipping down to verse five. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You see, the good news this morning is that we've died with Christ, that the old self, that the old us, that the old Andy was crucified. And that that in his place, what, what happens is that I become unified with Christ. When we put our faith in Christ, we become unified with him. It's, it's that he begins to live in and through us. And so it's only in recognizing our death in him. It's only in recognizing that, that we've ultimately died in him, that we begin to have life. That we begin to be transformed, that we begin to, to embody this. I was at a wedding just yesterday, and, and the guy said, I want you to remember three words for your marriage. He says, it is finished. That that Christ already paid for our sin. And so we live in the fullness of the fact that what's been done for us allows us to now move and do for him. 
Randy has the do done diagram. If you've been here for a while, it's a circle and it's really great. And I actually thought about saying, hey, I thought of this new do done diagram all by myself. Um, But I figured I'd get caught. Christ has already done for us. There was no amount of good that we can do. You cannot do good enough. You cannot be good enough to reach to God. And so the way that we're transformed, the way that we become a distinctive community is that we begin to trust Christ. We we begin to be unified to him. His spirit begins to change us as we recognize our death in him and our life in him. That is the transforming power for us. Do you know how God makes a distinctive community? It's not you and it's not me. It's Jesus You see, throughout the entirety of of history, what God's been doing is he's been calling a distinct community for himself. We see in Genesis that he he calls this nation of Israel and he says, you're going to be my people and here I'm going to give you a mark and and, and people will know that you're mine and you'll be different than the world around you. And he sets up the Ten Commandments that were distinctive for their community. And they blow it and so Jesus comes and and he sends his own son. God sends his son to come and rescue us. And that is what makes us distinctive. You and and your good deeds don't make us distinctive. Jesus makes us distinctive. And when we understand what he's done on our behalf, we unify ourselves to Christ. When he calls us and we unify and we live by the Spirit, that is when we become distinctive. That's when we begin to live differently than the culture around us. I think there's some of you in this room that need to experience the grace of God in this way. I've been a Pharisee a long time. I I shared with you, I've grown up in the church and there are multiple benefits for that. But but one of the things that's happened for me is I've I've been a person that's wanted a lot of people's approval and so what I've done over and over and over again is I've fought to get that approval, oftentimes by trying to look like a good guy trying to, to have people notice how, how nice or, or how good my character is. I've been puffing myself up, and, and I'll tell you this, it's exhausting. It's, it's absolutely exhausting trying to, to make the most of you so that others will see who you are. And I would guess that there are people in this room who instead of experiencing the grace of God are saying, if I could just make myself a little bit better, if I could just improve these couple things, then God would really, really, really be proud of me. He's already proud of you. He's already so proud of you, he died for you. He already gave his life for you. Some of you, I think this morning, need to die to your own desire. You say, I I can make my own way. I can do this myself. I can set my own mode. I can be a pretty good person, and, and I got this. And what God is saying is, no, 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 none to me. I got this. I can handle this for you. I can begin to transform your life. I can, exp- I can show you what true human flourishing is. This morning, the grace of God causes us to be a distinctive community. And then here's what happens. When we've experienced grace, we become a community that affects the world. We, we, we become a community that begins to transform the very area around us. I want you to imagine with me for just a second, if all of us trusted Christ in such a way that he began to transform, he began to, to do something in our life that was otherworldly, that was Christ-like on our behalf. Imagine 
what Northeast Atlanta could be like. Imagine what what Boca Raton could look like. Imagine what, what it would look like if God began to transform his church such that we were a distinctive community that looked like this, not because we've, we've worked so hard to be this, but instead we've trusted Christ in such a way that he's beginning to change our lives. He's beginning to transform us. He's freeing us to love others. He's freeing us to show that love can be genuine, that, that we're hospitable, that, that we care for our enemies, that, that we give to the needs of the saints, that we, that we care for one another, that we live in harmony together with the world outside these walls, saw that. Wow, what that would be. And we have that power this morning because Christ has done that. And, and he's changing our community, a community that can affect the world because he's calling a distinctive community to himself through Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning asking that you will transform our hearts, that we will rest in the grace of your son, Jesus who has died, who has given us the opportunity towards life, who has provided a way, an opportunity for us to run to you. Lord, to those this morning whose effort has been to to be those who earn you through their good deeds, Lord, may may your grace fall on their hearts in real ways. May we be changed by your grace. Lord, to those who have sought their own way, to those who have sought to find life on their own, Lord, may you become real in their hearts. May they recognize that true life is found in the love of Jesus. May they even this morning be so taken by your gospel that they give their heart and their life to you, the Savior of the world. Lord, may that be the case even this morning. We love you. We're thankful for your son, Jesus, who embodied the very nature of you, God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.